My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the Classical Classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Eric Skelly, who is the co-host of the Opera Cheat Sheet, another great podcast that provides a hilarious SparkNotes-esque overview of our weekly opera broadcast, and you can use it for just learning about opera in general. He is also our senior underwriting account executive here at Houston Public Media, and he is a member of both the Bering Memorial... <clears throat> I'm going to try that again because this is a mouthful. Take a, take a running start at that yeah. one. Yeah. All right, here we go. <laughs> he is a member of both the Bering Memorial United Methodist Church Choir... And the Houston Symphony Chorus. He's also written for a long time for major arts publications. But more importantly, he's a major fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yes, Eric, it's welcome true. to the show. Thank you. Any Thank you Buffy for having fan me. Is, 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 is welcome here. Thank you. I feel like I'm <laughs> cheating on Sinjin Flynn, though. I know. I know. And I like it. I won't. <laughs> beautiful. Beautiful. What are you going to be teaching me about today? Well, you know, when we first talked about this, you, you know, had wanted to do another uh, classical classroom about opera. And opera yeah. is such a vast, you know, people, people spend the entire careers, uh, you know, looking in just tiny corners of opera. Um, so I thought, what can we, what can we focus on that would be really useful to you that, you know, could be useful in you going forward as you, you know, look at opera seasons and and think about what you might like to, to try out. And I thought, let's pick a particular composer and who better than Giuseppe Verdi, because he is, uh, well, whenever you see classical music critics do their top 10 lists, he always makes the top 10. And I know his name. Well, there Which you is, go. You know, for opera, I mean, I know I know less about opera than I do about non-opera classical music. So that's and and that is saying something. So this is yeah, we've only done two other shows about opera. One was near the very beginning of of our doing this show. I remember that one. It, it was, was you and Angela Schmidt yeah, talking, talking about, about bel canto. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then we did another show on uh, Nixon in China. Oh, right. It was actually a double episode with uh, Michael Remsen. Right. Yeah. I worked on the world premiere of that opera. Did you really? I really did. I was the uh, assistant public relations director at Houston Grand Opera at the time. and. Wow. We were, you know, preparing to move into the Wortham Center and we're publicizing the opening of the of the Wortham Center. We were publicizing the world premiere of Nixon in China. We had Verdi's Aida starring Morella Freni and Placido Domingo. Um, it nearly killed us. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great, great time, and I'm glad to have been a part of that. That's so. right. I, for, I forgot it premiered in Houston. We it talked did. about that a little bit. It sure did. Well, okay, let's get to the Verdi. All right. So... Who was this guy? When did he live? Where did he live? Well, he was uh, he was a farmer. 
<laughs> he came from farming stock, and he, he loved nothing better than to go back to to sort of reboot, to go back to his farm yeah. in in I believe it was in the Po Valley in Italy. He was it was Italian, obviously, and he was he was just one of these guys that revolutionized opera in the 19th century. That is the mm-hmm. mostly the mid to late 19th century. Okay. Now, while his contemporary Richard Wagner just completely turned everything on its ear and just said, all right, I'm throwing everything out and I'm going to reinvent the wheel completely. And, And he pretty much did. Verdi took the opposite tack. He worked from the inside out. Huh and slowly changed it over the course of a very long, prolific career. Okay. Um, and you're going to show me what that means as yeah. we go through this? Yeah. Okay, cool. But I, I, thought, I thought we would start by just listening to some quick excerpts of some things that you would recognize instantly. Okay. Because his music, I mean, Verdi was, I mean, you know, forget Madonna, forget Lady Gaga and all these folks. Verdi was bigger than all of these folks. He was... He was popular entertainment in wow. Italy in his time and beyond Italy. Mm-hmm. And his music um, was and, and still is so popular that it, it bursts out of the confines of classical music and, and bleeds over into popular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought we might listen to a few things, you know, briefly just to say, oh, yeah, that's Verdi? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's hear it for sure. Oh, yeah. I yeah. That one. Yeah, yeah. So, so what is this? This is the aria La Donna e Mobile from Rigoletto. Okay. And this is a, a very famous tenor aria uh, in which this completely reprehensible character, <laughs> he really is, he's just irredeemable. He is, <laughs> there's nothing good about this a guy. A winner, yeah. He is not a winner. Um, he basically is uh, espousing his view of of women, which is that women are fickle and they're in a, you know you've seen one, you've seen them all, and when you, uh, you move on to the next one, that's you know whatever. Right? <laughs> nice guy. Yeah, he really is not. <laughs> but but he gets some really memorable music to sing. So that's that's La Donna Immobile from Rigoletto. All right. Ring a bell? Sort yeah. of? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This is the the Brindisi, which is a drinking song from La Traviata. Ah, uh, okay. And long before Hollywood invented the meat cute, uh-huh. <laughs> this is sort of the meat cute. This huh. is this is where the tenor and the soprano. It's not the first time they meet, but it's the, it's when they sort of fall in love. Yeah. And this is a, a drinking song that they drink, and he 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 proposes a toast, and she sort of. She's sort of still committed to this this life of carefree frivolity, and she's kind of holding him a little bit at arm's length with this. But yeah. but again, I mean, listen to this melody. I mean, how can you resist the melody? Oh no, it's it's I like mean, it's so catchy. <clears throat> I 
And it sounds so Italian. Yes. <laughs> There's something like about both of the excerpts that you just played that is so, I don't know why that is. I, I couldn't pinpoint it. But there's something that just sounds like, you know, you just want to burst into that samore. It's those it. it's those syncopated rhythms that that uh, you know they sort of follow the Italian speech pattern so perfectly, and Verdi does that better than anybody. Really? Ever? Yeah. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So, so Wagner was a contemporary of his, yes. and which is, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Having heard some Wagner opera, that is very hard to believe. <laughs> like it, it, that there's anything in common. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, who who else was was composing around this time? Classical music or opera or? Well, this is this is the height of the Romantic period. Okay. So you know, in Russia, you've got Tchaikovsky and Mussorgsky. Um, you've got Dvorak. I mean, these are all the the the, the big Romantic composers. Yeah. Uh, of the period, and they're all—I mean, they're not all exact contemporaries, but they're all, you know, overlapping one another. And, right, right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it gives me a. But a that's time a, that's a really good point you make. That is—I mean, it just it just breathes Italian. Yeah. It just—it's <laughs> quintessentially Italian to totally. its core. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's hear another excerpt. Okay. Sound familiar at all? Definitely. <laughs> That's the Grand March from Verdi's Aida. Okay. And, uh, you know, this is an opera that takes place in Egypt, and yet it still sounds quintessentially Italian yeah. in a lot of ways, even though he puts a lot of, um, uh, what, what, what would you say, a lot of Eastern color uh-huh. into the score. Something like this, it's just... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's... It's so Italian. It's sort of like like somebody with a, a, a strong Italian accent speaking, you know, in in, a, in another language. Uh-huh. Like you can still hear <laughs> right. that influence. Right. Yeah. And I think we have one last little clip from. Well, I won't tell you. Okay. I'll just let I'll just let it. Okay. You will know this one instantly. Okay. Guarantee it. All right. This is a recording of a live performance and what a raggedy chorus. <laughs> Bless their hearts. <laughs> This sounds like Looney Tunes music. It's going to be in a second. Here it comes. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's the anvil chorus from Il Trovatore. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. They're gypsies, and they're singing about the gypsy life, and they're swinging anvils and Uh hammers and... 
Life is good. So basically, this <laughs> is <now>. romantic <laughs> comedy slash drinking music. It's actually not comedy at all. It's just just that in 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 you know when Looney Tunes or when popular culture uh-huh. co-opts this music, it usually puts it in some sort of funny context. Yeah. But the opera is anything but funny. <laughs> it's well, so not funny. Really? Yeah. The, the like story and yeah. it, itself. Oh, it's just awful. It's just terribly tragic from beginning to end. Yeah. Well, there's something that's very like it's like a caricature. Like uh, like everything about this music is so like big. It's like things are exaggerated. Yeah, and, you know, that's like, because you know pop culture has taken it and exaggerated it for effect. I see. Yeah, okay. I, I, and for instance, you may have you may have heard it in the Marx Brothers' A Night at the Opera. Probably. That's the yeah. that's the opera that they completely sabotage at the end of the opera, and there are all sorts of excerpts, including this one. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, and it's all the more funny because it's not a funny opera. <laughs> it's no, not funny. That's great. And we are none the wiser. Yeah. Well, so talk to me about, like, I mean, these, like, he's clearly just somebody who is iconic and is just everywhere and who probably anybody who has a TV or a radio has heard at some point. Yeah. So, so tell me about his creative life. How, how did he... Why does he stand out? How did he move opera forward? Well, let's let's dive in, why don't we? Because basically Verdi's works and he he wrote a lot of opera. Uh-huh. There are a lot of operas from his early period that we don't hear very often mm-hmm. because he, he was so prolific in his early years and he called them his galley years and he was just churning them out one after another. Yeah. And some of them, yeah, I mean they're not the masterpieces, but but it's still Verdi. Even Verdi at less than his best is is always worth listening to. Mm-hmm. When I talk about his early period, uh, you have the numbers. You know, you have the arias and the duets and the ensembles and the choruses. And then you have the musical connecting material that they call recitative. Do you recall that? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the recitative is where all the action happens. Okay. His early period operas still have... The recitative, and then the arias, mm-hmm. and there's usually a slow aria, the cavatina, and then it's followed by a fast aria to show how agile and, and flexible the voice can be. Yeah, and uh, and that's basically what he's doing in his early period, and he's moving though toward a middle period, and, and we'll, when we get there, we'll we'll see what he does to just kind of blow things open. Okay, for opera, but let's uh, let's listen to an aria from Macbeth. Okay. Because Verdi was all about Shakespeare. Verdi revered Shakespeare. Hmm. And uh, he he did uh, three Shakespearean works. Mm-hmm. There's Macbeth, uh, Othello, and Falstaff was, was his last opera. And we'll be hearing some of that a little bit in a little bit. This is our introduction to Lady Macbeth. All right. She's just read the letter from Macbeth telling her that he's been named Thane of Cawdor, and she's starting to think big <laughs> and dangerously. Mm-hmm. And she's starting to dream about what could be in store for them, what they could grasp if they were to reach out and grasp the future and, quote, screw their courage to the sticking place and uh-huh. do some rather nasty things to get there. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, 
I know that that in opera you've got people who are who write the actual music. We've got the the composers, and then you've got librettists. Yes. Now, did did Verdi do both? How did no, that work? He did okay. not, but he was very particular about his librettists, and, and he worked very closely with them. Okay. Uh, and was very demanding of them <laughs> 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 in creating uh, in creating his operas. When when we get to the end of his his career, he meets uh, another composer named Arrigo Boito, who also composed or er, wrote librettos, mm-hmm. and. The two of them become one of the all-time great composer librettist teams. Uh, and, a, and a librettist only writes the words. Correct. Okay. No, no music. No. No musical composition. No. Although Boito actually did write some of his okay. own operas as well. But ty- but typically no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But one of the things you notice, uh, you may have noticed in in this Macbeth excerpt, is. The size of this singer's voice. Yes. <laughs> my, it's not my, small. My eyes kind of really big. Hello. Yeah. Verdi's orchestras are getting bigger. Uh, and consequently, the size of the voice required of singers got bigger because of Verdi and Wagner and, and folks that followed them. Right. Um, this particular role uh, <laughs> can be done by both sopranos and mezzo-sopranos. Uh, because it tends to it tends to sit low in the soprano voice and and you need to really kind of have a big middle voice plus top notes all the way up to a high D above the staff a yeah. D above high C and a mezzo soprano can sort of do that whole range sometimes it's a little easier for a mezzo to do that to live in that in that in that area and if she's got the the D <laughs> the D above high C then she's she's golden that was Fiorenza Cosotto there um, well from there we go to Verdi's middle period all right okay that begins with Rigoletto and it includes just one masterpiece after another. Rigoletto, Traviata, Trovatore, Don Carlo, Aida, uh-huh. uh, The Force of Destiny. Um, it's it, uh, Simon Bocanegra. Mm-hmm. And what he does, when, when he's starting with Rigoletto, what he does here is he'll have, for instance, a duet, let's say. And the melody will not be in the voices. The melody will be in the orchestra behind the hmm. voices, allowing the voices to have a dialogue, to have a very natural sounding dialogue okay. between them, and thereby allowing him to further plot ah. in a okay. musical number. And this is this is very different from what had come before. This Completely, like an yeah. This is mm-hmm. very much an innovation. Yeah. Very much an innovation. So I wanted to, to demonstrate that I... I went for uh, a duet from Don Carlo. Okay. Don Carlo is an amazing piece. It's, it's loosely based on history. Philip II of Spain, the king of Spain from the 16th century, mm-hmm. he is a major character in this opera. And he has a son, Carlo, of the title, whom, with whom he is not well pleased. <laughs> <laughs> And he is uh, a king who has a reputation for ruthlessness. And he shows that here 
but he also has this other side to him where he just can't quite figure out why nobody loves him. <laughs> Seriously. And it's very poignant. It sounds funny when I say it that way, but it's very poignant. And he has this whole aria that opens this, this act where he, he laments the fact that his wife never loved him. Well, you know, <laughs> he was supposed to marry your son and you sort of pulled a bait and switch on her and married her yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know. First mistake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's So what's hap- what's going to happen here is this scene is is uh, I think I'm not overstating it. I don't think this is hyperbole to say it's one of the greatest scenes in all of opera. All right. This is Philip II and he has asked for an audience with the Grand Inquisitor of Spain. Okay. What does that mean? I, I huh, the Inquisition. Title. The Inquisition was uh, a way in which the the Church at mm. that time was able to exert power. Sure. Yeah. Over everyone, including the monarchy. And the Grand Inquisitor was the the, yeah. the, the person who was sort of heading this up in any absolutely place. Okay. Absolutely. Got and it. they the way that they wielded power was through torture and you know, burnings, and mm-hmm. they were not nice guys. So compassion and, and love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were really deeply, deeply twisted, scary people. Wow. <laughs> wow. Deeply, deeply, deeply. This guy, this Grand Inquisitor, uh, they don't actually name him. Uh, I think the historical Grand Inquisitor was Torquemada, if I'm not mistaken. This guy is very, very old. He's completely blind. He has to be helped into the room by two attendants. Mm-hmm. And yet, you can hear in the music that accompanies him in the low bassoons that this guy is supremely dangerous. All right. He's announced. Does that not make your spine crawl? Yeah, that's pretty creepy. <laughs> that's pretty creepy. Yeah. He's just walking into the room at this point. That's him. He's asking if he's in the presence of the king because he's blind. He doesn't know. <clears throat> that's Philip II. Philip is telling him that his son is causing him great anguish mm-hmm. and pain. He's going to ask him in a second, if I, if I have him killed, will you pardon me? <laughs> Holy moly. Yeah. But the interesting thing here is, if you listen, when you're listening to this, the melody is all in the orchestra behind them. They're interjecting. They're having a conversation over uh-huh. the melody. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, and there are things actually. The plot is being furthered here, right? Because the king, the, the grand inquisitor, is going to tell him, "Yeah, <laughs> you betcha. You betcha. He, 
I mean, it, but the music isn't losing any momentum while they're having this conversation no. because it keeps going. But notice, background. notice though, that the the tessitura, the, the where the, the how high their vocal line is, uh-huh. keeps going up. The, it keeps up and up and up, and the more cruel and ruthless and heartless the things they're saying, the more cruel the the vocal line becomes. Until they're up at the very tops of their range. These are two bases. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah, they're they really are. You know, Philip asks him, if I if I strike down my own son, will you absolve me? Uh-huh. And uh the Inquisitor says, well, sh- yeah. <laughs> Philip says, can I, as a Christian, can I do that? And the Inquisitor's response is, well, Christ, you know, God did, sacrificed his only son. Can you do any less? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Because you are so much like God. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I said, twisted. Dang. <laughs> twisted. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. So these are two great, great bases, by the way. This is Nikolai Giaurov as Philip II, and the great Finnish bass Madi Talvela as the Grand Inquisitor. I mean, this is just when you get two great bases in these roles, it's just like watching, you know, Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal play a tennis <laughs> match. You know the. <laughs> right. You know. Yeah. Well, so. So this is so this is from Verdi's sort of middle period. Yes, where he's basically experienced the level, experiencing the level of fame and adoration that like mid '90s Madonna experienced. And he's breaking open the mold. He's yeah. he's breaking out mm-hmm. of the strictures that he's he's been operating under. You know that mm-hmm. Bel Canto uh, left him. He basically took the reins from Donizetti, uh-huh. and. You know, and through his early period, he he kept to that all the while finding his own voice as a composer. Now, he's breaking out of that, right? And he's he's creating works that are far more dramatically riveting than yeah. than you know almost anything that's gone before. Yeah. And when we get to his late period, which is really just two operas, Otello and Falstaff. Hmm. Blows the whole thing wide open. Oh, it's it's almost it's it's difficult even to pull a number out of there. You you can do it, but it's it's almost like it's just one big through composed entity from beginning to end of each act, hmm. and it just goes on. And he, there's melody, but it's but it's constantly changing and it's evolving and it's it's not you know, here even in Don Carlo when you have arias. Um, Oftentimes, you know, they have structure to them. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not that the late period stuff doesn't have structure. It's just much more free form. Well, let's hear it. Okay. This sounds fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to Falstaff. All right. Okay, this is Verdi going back to Shakespeare. Because his last two operas are Otello mm-hmm. and Falstaff. Yeah. And first of all, let me just point out that when we listen to Falstaff, it's it still is amazing to me that we're listening to a work 
that premiered when Verdi was 82 years old. Whoa. And that's 82 in in the context of the 19th century. Wow. That's not 82 now. Now, you know, everything's shifting. Right. Now 82-year-olds <clears throat> run marathons. And... Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> this is in the 19th century. And it's, it's astounding. I mean, he, and that he was able to create this. And this this is an unabashed golden masterpiece. This is this is absolute uh, a brilliant piece of work. It's it's uh it's one of only two comedies he ever wrote. One he wrote way way early. I think it was like his second opera ever. Mm-hmm. And then there's this one. And it's based upon Shakespeare's Merry Wives of Windsor mm-hmm. with a few excerpts pulled from Henry the 4th part 4, which is where they, we first meet the character of Falstaff. Okay. And it's just one of those works that makes you feel, oh, you know, all is right with the world. And you just <laughs> walk out of the theater, you know, a couple inches off the ground. Right. It just makes you happy. It's, it's so wonderful. Okay, let's hear it. Now check this out. What is going on? <laughs> You've got two groups of characters. These are all principal characters, okay? Uh-huh. And they're on two different sides of the stage, and they're each conversing in their own little groups. You've got the men over here and the women over here. And they're all plotting. They're all uh-huh. plotting uh, uh, to, to get Falstaff his comeuppance. Yeah. But they're doing so in two different meters. <laughs> and it shouldn't work. It should go completely off the rails, and yet it doesn't. Yeah. It all fits. Yeah. It's very playful, too. It's completely playful from yeah. beginning to end. And you can hear how, I mean, here now you can hear the voices and they're singing They've got the melody, but then they'll go out of it. Then they'll, then, then they'll be conversing, and the melody's back in the orchestra, and it just kind of trades off and on, and it's, it just all works. It's just all so masterfully composed. And it's like this for the duration of the opera, where it's just sort of, you, you move sort of fluidly from one thing to the other. Mm-hmm. And it's a little more true to life and that, that that's how people converse. Yes, exactly. In, in groups it follows their and at speech the same patterns. time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. So let's let's go to uh, another scene. Okay. This is where they're setting Falstaff up uh-huh. for his comeuppance. Falstaff is Oh my gosh. Falstaff is a legend in his own mind. He is a very old man uh-huh. <laughs> and he's a very 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 fat man. <laughs> he is, he, if he ever had a sell-by date, he is long past it. But he doesn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's virtually penniless. He's living hand-to-mouth. But he, he is a knight, and he just thinks that he is, you know, the bee's knees. Yeah. Just, <laughs> and yeah. he thinks of himself as a great seducer. So what he's done is he set his sights on these two married women, Alice and Meg. Yeah. And he sends them two letters, setting up, trying to set up an assignation. And he sends them the exact same letters and just changes their names. 
Oh, classy. And of course they're friends. And so they, <laughs> Meg comes in with this letter and Alice goes, I've got one too. And they read them to each other and they go, oh, he's, he's toast. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So they send their friend Dame Quickly. She's, she's the, uh, sort of the, oh, the matronly one of the group. And she's going to go to Falstaff and she's going to make the assignation mm-hmm. for Alice. Uh, to to set up Falstaff for his comeuppance. Yeah, and this is that scene, and she comes in. This is this is sung by a uh, a dramatic uh, mezzo soprano or contralto. Yeah, who has big plummy chest voice <laughs> and can really play this up. And she comes in, and the first thing she sings is reverenza, your reverence, your honor, and she just lays it on so. Thick. Yeah, and if you can get a a, a mezzo who is a great comedic actress, uh, this one is is the great Fedora Barbieri with one of the all time great Falstaffs, the the Italian baritone Tito Gobi. I can, hear, I can hear that. Yeah. She's really like, your reverence. Yes. Oh, with a big exaggerated curtsy yeah. all the way down uh-huh. to the ground. In a minute, she's going to say, tu sei un gran seduttore. You're a great seducer. And he'll say, I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It is. It's just wonderful. And then, you know, in the next scene, they have the whole situation where he comes in and he's supposed to meet Alice. And, uh, and they've, they've set it up so that Meg is supposed to run in and say, your husband is coming. And, and you know, and they're going to, you know, throw him into a laundry basket and yeah. throw him out the window. Well, what happens is her husband actually catches wind of this. <laughs> And he does show up with a whole retinue of guys with, you know, pitchforks. And it's just (laughs) this whole chaotic comedic scene. And it's so masterfully masterminded by Verdi every step of the way. And it ends with them actually dumping Falstaff in a laundry basket out the window into the Thames. (laughs) (laughs) This is fabulous. It is fabulous. And and it goes (laughs) and then there's a whole nother, you know, plot that happens in the next couple of acts. And then the entire opera ends with a fugue. Well, let's play it. It's called okay. Tutto nel mondo e burla. All in the world is a joke. Okay. And everybody's, everybody's born a jokester. <laughs> everybody's trading off the, the line, you know, yeah. the, main, uh, the main melody line. And it's 
over and over and over again, different sections is coming out of from everywhere. Is this overwhelming for an audience to experience? I mean, these are all of these big voices going at once. Um, yes and no. It's overwhelming in that it just suffuses you with such joy you just bounce yeah. out of the theater. But the beauty of opera is that in ensembles, because every voice has a different line, uh-huh. you can follow them all. Okay. If you tried that in, in you know, in, in just you know a straight theatrical piece mm-hmm. that's not musical, it would be chaotic because you couldn't right. follow any of them. But because the music allows you to okay. distinguish each voice, yeah. it's not chaotic. It's actually quite brilliant. It works. It works. Is where he's getting dumped into this. No, 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 no. <laughs> Everybody's forgiven everyone. Oh, okay. Everybody's forgiven everyone. It is. They're all, all good. friends again. Okay. And, yeah. All right. Before we wrap up, wh- why do you think that Verdi is still studied today? Why are his operas still performed today? What is it that made him last this long and still remain so very important and iconic? His supreme genius for wedding brilliant melody that yeah. that that appeals to everyone uh-huh. is it's universally appealing to dramatic structures that are that remain relevant yeah you know i just saw a, a rigoletto that was set in 1960s las vegas what and it worked <laughs> it worked that's crazy sometimes they try that stuff and it's and it's yeah. just oh you've got to be kidding right. this worked huh. because it's so it still remains so relevant, and it, it it can be lifted from from time period to time period, and still be made to work, because yeah. because it's it's all about the it's about the music. It seems like the thing that sort of ties people who who last for centuries and centuries, whose whose names remain in the textbooks, and people keep studying them, and and are the people who have their their eye set on something that is bigger, that is universal, that's not about necessarily themselves or expressing themselves but it's they create in order to connect with something yeah and with Verdi it's about the human condition it's about people it's about fathers and daughters and Uh fathers and sons and the complexities of those relationships yeah and those never you know that the importance of that and the relevance of of that never goes never becomes irrelevant Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. For me too. And and I will have you back again when we need another dose of opera for sure. I'm ready whenever you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody, that about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org backslash classroom. Subscribe to us on iTunes or you can go to soundcloud.com backslash classical classroom to see and hear everything we've ever recorded. Listen to us on Stitcher Radio, and always remember to rate and review us. We promise it will make you feel warm and fuzzy. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, email me at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to audio engineer Todd, with a T, Holslander, for making us sound fit for public consumption, to program director Sinjin Flynn for lending Eric to us, to Eric Skelly for taking time out of his busy day to be with us. Uh, to me for saying words, and to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.